The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Timothy Wise. He's a senior researcher at the Small Planet Institute, where he directs the Land and Food Rights Program. He is also a senior research fellow at Tufts University's Global Development and Environment Institute, where he founded and directed its Globalization and Sustainable Development Program. He previously served as executive director of the U.S.-based aid agency, Grassroots International. He is the author of Confronting Globalization, Economic Integration and Popular Resistance in Mexico. He is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I have his most recent book in front of me. It's titled Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. Welcome, Mr. Wise. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it took you five years, if I understand correctly, to complete this project, and you wrote this book to answer certain questions. And I wonder if you can tell me what launched you into writing this book and why did it take so long? Ah, well, you know, it was a one-year fellowship to write this book, actually to do the research for this book. So any book writer will know that you can't do it in a year. And I didn't. What really launched me on the project was that your listeners may remember, although it's, I think, turning into a a little bit too distant memory that in 2007 and 8 food prices spiked largely driven by rising demand for ethanol in the US and for biofuels elsewhere and a variety of other causes but basic commodity prices doubled or tripled corn prices doubled wheat rice prices tripled it was dubbed the new food crisis and there were riots in many countries tortilla riots in Mexico and it raised this, re-raised the question about whether or not we collectively had outstripped our the natural resource base and population was now about to overwhelm those resources for growing food. The Malthusian nightmare, Thomas Malthus posed that many, many years ago. It's been widely disproven ever since. I'd say it still deserves to be disproved. And I wrote this book because... As a result of that food price crisis, there were a lot of interesting movement movements in the policy sphere for changes in policies, changes that recognized that actually poor farmers in developing countries weren't just anachronistic backward producers holding back development in their countries. They were the ones who were producing most of the food, and they needed more support to do that. And they could be part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. And that would involve changing government policies on just telling developing countries they could import all their food because it's cheaper coming from the United States and other developed countries. I wrote the book because that just wasn't happening. That change in narrative wasn't followed by an actual change in policies. And I really wanted to understand why policies continued to just follow their same old failing path 
failing in the sense that we were failing to feed the hungry, failing in the sense that we were undermining the natural resource base, indeed, on which food production depends. And instead of supporting the small-scale farmers who were showing that it could be done sustainably, policymakers were promoting the same old big agricultural projects using Western technologies that small farmers couldn't afford. I wanted to know why. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, the conclusion I came to after traveling, not the whole globe, but a chunk of it. I was in India and Mexico and Southern Africa were the countries I focused on in the book. And of course, the United States, because I wanted to see where this dysfunctional agricultural model had come from and that we were now exporting as the solution to the world's problems. I came to the conclusion that agribusiness firms, corporate agriculture, had largely hijacked the policy agenda to its benefit. And that derailed most efforts to significantly support small-scale farmers in low-cost, sustainable solutions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very sophisticated plan that they have. I see the infiltration at my own land-grant university here in Missouri. We have a Monsanto auditorium, a Monsanto business incubator. I see the influence of agribusiness at my professional meetings, which should be based on promoting public health. And it's really all about promoting the use of genetically modified seeds, which are resistant to herbicides, under this guise of feeding the world. And feeding the world was one of the issues that I have on my list to talk with you about front and center. There are even belt buckles that are for sale to farmers that say feeding the world. This message is everywhere. And if I go to an agricultural meeting, I have these little red flags that pop up. The first sentence is, you know, we've got these billions of mouths to feed. I know what's coming next, right? This is going to be a lecture about how we're going to use technology to feed the world. So, how do you want us to think about this idea? I know you've mentioned that how are we going to feed the world is a good question with terrible answers. Why don't you tell me what some of those terrible answers are? Well, they all follow the same line, basically. The line is we need to grow more food. There's a shortage of food, so we need to grow more food, and we need to do it quickly because people are starving. And the fastest way to do it is to export our technologies to developing countries. What's so wrong about that is that more food has never solved hunger. I work now at the Small Planet Institute with Francis Moore LePay, who almost 50 years ago, and it's hard to believe it was now almost 50 years ago, wrote Diet for a Small Planet. And Diet for a Small Planet was intended to bust the myth of scarcity. And she argues very persuasively in that book and some of the 18 others she's written since, that hunger is not a product of a scarcity of food. It's a product of a scarcity of power, power of small food producers over food producing resources like land, and power of the poor over incomes to be able to afford food that's available to them. That is as true today as it was when she wrote that 50 years ago. Reuters reported recently that we were experiencing a global grain glut, and yet at the same time, I mean, that's literally, I mean, farmers in the Midwest will, all around you will tell you that. It's not just there, it's all over the industrialized or industrial agricultural world. 
that grains are piling up outside silos and rotting. And yet, the last three years, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN has documented a rise in the number of severely malnourished people to over 800 million. So we're growing more food, and it's not reducing hunger, and it never has, and it never will. That's not the problem, is what I argue in the book. And I guess I argue as well that this whole idea of how will we feed the world is just deeply arrogant as a way to pose the problem. Because we all know who we mean when we say we. We mean the global north or the industrialized world with its high-yield agriculture. But the poor in the developing world are fed precariously, but their food comes from, 70% of it comes from farmers in their own countries. They're the ones largely feeding the developing world. And the majority of them are farmers, so they're also not waiting passively for us to feed them or anyone else to feed them. They're struggling mightily day to day, year to year, season to season to, to try to feed their families and their communities. And I had hopes in that the initial responses to the food price crisis in 2007 and 8 that we'd start to see some new policies that address that, that help those farmers. And we really haven't. And the policies we've seen are ones that are about promoting unaffordable and ineffective technologies to those same farmers. Mm-hmm. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I find their involvement with agri-technology very interesting. I know that from other interviews you've had, you've been questioned about them. And in my small circles of sustainability, we always wonder, who knows Bill and Melinda Gates? You know, Who can take them to the farms to see what's really going on? And the question, of course, is why can't they see what's really going on? Yeah, it is the question that I get everywhere I talk about this book, because the Gates Foundation, of course, is the elephant in the room when it comes to agricultural development, particularly in Africa. They initiated the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, have been the, by far the biggest funder of that. They've gotten other governments to put in donor funds, development funds. Rockefeller Foundation and a few other foundations are in on it too, but it's really their baby. And it's all about promoting Western technologies to small-scale farmers in Africa. I answer the question, I mean, I was in Seattle in the end of October, and there's not much hope of even meeting with someone at the Gates Foundation to raise questions. It's a pretty closed operation, very carefully managing its message. They don't want to talk on the record very much. But I think what's clear is, and a colleague, um, Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists, was one of my book talks with me, and he answered the question better than I did. He said, it's probably not a good idea to expect a technology monopolist to come up with solutions to the world's problems that are not based on technology and big corporations. Right. And I think that's really the sense I get, and people in the Gates Foundation have told me this, there's a very, very deep commitment to technological solutions to the world's problems. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Africa, you mentioned the Green Revolution, and I think the biggest issue that we are facing in the public health world is climate change. And so I want to connect all of these things together. Maybe for some of our listeners, we should talk about the Green Revolution, what it is, and why we should question it, even though 
when we do question it, oftentimes, we're quickly labeled as being anti-science. So it's a touchy area. There's a lot of money at our land-grant institutions that come from the agri-industry, the tech industry. And so there are reasons why these discussions don't come up as often as I think they should. But tell me about Africa and tell me about how the Green Revolution is working in that area of the world. Yeah, the first Green Revolution was the product of U.S. plant breeder Norman Borlaug and a big promotional effort that came out of his crop breeding research where he bred higher yield varieties of wheat and corn largely and that would grow well with inorganic fertilizer and uh, a variety of other inputs and then promoted that very heavily with government support in India and other parts of Asia and Latin America. And it's credited, I think wrongly, as new research has shown, with saving millions of lives. New research suggests that we really need to rethink that history. It's uh, There's a lot of mythology. If anybody has been to Des Moines and the World Food Prize in and Des Moines will, will recognize there's a lot of mythology about the, the Green Revolution. And part of that comes from, is part and parcel of the, the We Feed the World belt buckles, you see. It's the same mantra. It's not entirely true. The idea that the Green Revolution for Africa was, well, the first Green Revolution passed them by. They were aced out because it wasn't quite right for their conditions and their institutions, but now we have better technologies. We can tailor seeds much more readily to their soils and their needs, and so we can give Africa its very own green revolution. And so that's what they're doing. That's largely the goal is to put so-called improved seeds, high-yield seeds, in the hands of small-scale farmers, if possible, get them in organic fertilizers, and turn them into modern farmers in our own image. That's really the goal. It's not working well Mm -hmm. uh, in a whole variety of different ways. And that's what I document in a couple of the chapters of the book on Africa. It's just in its simplest form, it's kind of an inappropriate technology, not out of line with the other kinds of inappropriate technology that development agencies from the United States and other developed countries are famous for or infamous for promoting and then being surprised that they don't work as well there as they do here. It's a little bit the same story with Green Revolution technology. The soils don't respond as well. Farmers can't afford the inputs. They have governments massively subsidizing the distribution of these inputs. And even with those massive subsidies, they're really just not getting much of a yield increase, much of a productivity increase. Certainly not enough to let farmers invest more money in their farms, buy more inputs, move to using tractors instead of hose and that kind of thing. It's just not generating that kind of response. So I think it's a massive failure. And I'm working on a new study to look at some of the data on that now. Mm, I'll look forward to seeing that. We're midway. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Timothy Wise. He's a senior researcher at the Small Planet Institute, where he directs the Land and Food Rights Program. We are talking about his latest book titled Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. I want to go back to 
our discussion in Africa because of the tremendous climate change impact that you witnessed there. And climate change is something that I heard at a health conference described as the issue that everybody thinks is happening to somebody else. And so we really don't put enough attention on it. But this idea of farming for climate resiliency is so critically important. And I wonder, since you have witnessed climate resilient farms, if you can tell us what makes a farm climate resilient. Oh, sure. Yeah, I went in knowing a lot about climate change, but I was shocked at the the extent to which climate change was a clear and present danger in so much of Southern Africa, where I was researching. Africa is one of the areas that scientists say is, is going to be hardest hit by climate change. They just experienced on the east coast of of Southern Africa in Mozambique, the worst cyclone that they've ever experienced. At the same time that Iowa and Missouri were experiencing their own bomb cyclone, which I think was a little bit more of a wake-up call that climate change doesn't just happen to Mozambicans, it happens to us too. But it wasn't just those, the, you know, sort of the big news-making storms. They'd suffered droughts, they'd suffered extreme weather events like storms that wash away soils and seeds. One community I visited repeatedly in, in Mozambique had just been on a climate roller coaster. They'd seen temperatures. People, we now are accustomed to calling this climate change and not global warming, but, but don't kid yourself, there's a lot of warming. And the warming is really damaging to agriculture, as any farmers will tell you. They saw temperatures that were normally in their growing season in the 90s, hit 100, 104, 110. They just saw their crops bake in the fields. They saw two years of drought such that they even had some irrigation from the Inkomati River, which ran down to the Indian Ocean, and the Inkomati River dried up. And so they didn't have irrigation. And if that's not bad enough, the the Indian Ocean swelled about eight inches over its previous level, flowed back up the dried riverbed four miles and into their drainage canals and irrigation canals and and poisoned their land. Some of that land, I was back there last June, and they, some of that land they still can't farm. So I'd ask them, I was like, how are you surviving this? How are you still here? And it, they credit what they call agroecological farming, climate resilient farming, and what that is. And you could see why it would be so critical in a an erratic climate like that is, you know, they're planting in raised beds, not with boards around the edges, but just in raised beds with intercropping a variety of crops, legume crops with maize, which is the main staple in the country, and a, and a wider variety of crops than that. That's improving their soils over the long run. And their soils looked beautiful in a lot of Africa. The soils are really degraded. Organic matter was rich. It holds moisture in a drought. That keeps a lot of crops alive. In a flood from a, an extreme storm, they have roots in the ground that keep the topsoil from washing away. The soil looked great. They reported that their yields were very solid using traditional seeds that they had on hand. And the link to nutrition was that crop diversity is the insurance, the nutritional insurance against climate change because everything doesn't die. If you plant a good variety of crops, 
if the maize fails, the corn fails, then you've, you still have yucca. You still have, you might have sweet potatoes. A variety of crops nourish the soil and then nourish the people. And it's a built-in insurance policy against, against climate change. And so you saw much healthier kids, even despite these climate shocks, and you saw much healthier soils. And they were doing it all on their own. The government was not supporting them in any way at all. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that the answers lie with so many of the indigenous practices and the farmers who have been on the land for years. And they have, as you say, incredible biodiversity. It makes a resilient population as well as a resilient environment. And yet we are losing biodiversity. You write that in Mexico, for example, I know I'm jumping around the world, but there are so many topics on my list. That's what I did in my five years. I know. Well, we're not going to be able to touch on all of them. People are just going to have to go out and get the book. But the biodiversity loss in Mexico really hit me from that lens of what we're losing nutritionally that we don't even know yet. But in 1960, you write that there were 32 different plants in a certain area of farming, and now there are eight. And and that's actually one of the more biodiverse. That counts as a diverse farm. Wow. Because, of course, what's being promoted is straight-up monoculture. Right. um, With no intercropping of anything. So that's diversity loss. The real diversity loss are the tracks of monoculture corn, which you see in a lot of a lot of Mexico and is what's really promoted in a lot of southern Africa too. No, it's shocking actually that the that it's such a um that it's so obviously the wrong answer for farmers. Right. And I mean I think I quote farmers saying, Really you want us to use more fossil fuel based fertilizers when there's climate change? That's not climate smart agriculture, that's climate stupid agriculture. No right. thank you. And it's so wonderful that farmers are rising up and speaking about what they are witnessing in their work. Right. And I'll say this, too. The, you know, I think farmers are, traditional farmers in Africa are often portrayed as still backward. I mean, they're poor, and they don't want to keep being poor. That's absolutely true. They also are not entirely happy with the quality of the seeds they have, the quality of their land, the quality, you know, it's not like like they're trying to maintain some idyllic traditional livelihood. They want to live better, and they want greater food security to start with. And most of the best projects that I saw actually did have outside support, not from the government usually. They usually came from a non-governmental organization. In the case of the community I just talked about, a Brazilian volunteer had come and helped them improve their corn seed, which is a local variety of corn, but he showed them how to improve it with more careful seed selection, mm. traditional way of improving varieties that ecologists and seed scientists and soil scientists can really help farmers in that way and say, you know what, given that temperatures are rising and whatever, this, is, this seed right here is better than that seed over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so start purifying it by growing out stand the be- you take the best kernels, grow out the best stands of it, save those as your seed corn, 
And gradually they started doing that, and they have a very productive yellow variety of, of corn that's very high in vitamin A and very nutritious, grows well in their conditions. They like the taste of it. It's mainly being ground and milled and, and, and eaten directly. So it it's very adapted to their to their culinary tastes and their and their climates. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was on my list because what we hear so often to support these technological advances is that well, you know, these these children in these developing countries, they're developing blindness, they need vitamin A, and here we have a native plant that is naturally rich in vitamin A. So why don't we get behind using what which already grows so well and, as you mentioned, has fabulous taste? And instead, when I go to some of the more recent agricultural conferences, I hear things like, well, we're going to have biofortified crops now without looking at the native plants that already exist with those nutrients. I saw that. The direct conflict in Malawi because the well, community in Malawi had an, had an even richer variety of maize, orange maize that I hadn't quite seen anything like it. The maize meal that's made from it is almost iridescent orange. Wow. It's kind of remarkable. And it turned out they've done, they partnered with a university in southern um, Malawi, the nutrition department that tested it and showed that it was a, it was very high in vitamin A and in fact tested it against the biofortified variety that was just being released by um, the National Seed Center and it was higher in vitamin A than than that yet when I and the, this community had become become so successful in growing out these seeds and spreading them around their communities and they'd gotten some fame for what they were doing. So aid agencies wanted to buy their seeds because they wanted to help farmers grow vitamin A-rich corn. Does the government step in and help that happen? No, they um, develop a seed law that actually would have made it illegal, if it had passed in its original form, would have made it illegal for farmers to save, exchange, and sell seeds that weren't certified by the government. Mm. And, you know, a farmer said to me, it's like he holds up a kernel of this bright yellow corn. It's like, we've been eating this forever. How could this not be a seed? They actually told farmers that they could only call their seeds grain worthy of eating but not planting because if it wasn't certified, it couldn't be seed. It's just such an extreme policy. But the reason there's a policy like that is that they really are trying to open up Africa to these seed companies. And if farmers are doing well saving their seeds, there is no market for seeds. So if you're going to open a market, you got to outlaw the, uh, make it harder for farmers to save seeds. And that's what they were doing. That's the same place where I was so outraged by the seed policy. I was talking with everybody about it. And I, I said to one guy who was defending it, this policy is so bad it could have been written by Monsanto. And he said, well, um, actually, a former Monsanto executive was one of the authors of the policy. Wow. We have to close there. Yeah. That's a, a powerful ending. I am going to have to direct people to your book because it is chock full with just 
the most amazing information that we would never otherwise know. And you describe yourself as a pessimistic optimist, and people are going to have to read the book to find out why. But the book is full of hope. And I just want to make sure people know that. Okay, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Timothy Wise, Senior Research Fellow, directed of the the Globalization and Sustainable Development Program. He is with the Small Planet Institute. I will provide a link to that, smallplanet.org backslash eating tomorrow. Mr. Wise, thank you so much for your work. It's really been a pleasure. 